Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Although, you know, Brian Seip last month, Gil West. I'm not a football player. <laughs> and I uh, obviously don't even look like one. So, uh, but uh, hopefully I've got something to share it this morning. So it's really a privilege and an honor. Um, when Kyung asked me to do this at the end of last year, I uh, sort of had to look at my calendar. My calendar is, I pretty much look at it six to nine months ahead of time. So this has been on the calendar for a while. And uh, every time I look at it, I say, I think that might be the most important thing I'm going to do in 2006. So uh, it's great that we're finally here. Um, I grew up Southern Baptist, so you don't uh, come to church unless you invite somebody. So I wanted to introduce my, uh, my best friend, Fred Newton, who's in from Cincinnati. That's, uh, that's just what you do when you're Southern Baptist, you know. So uh, I had to kind of live that out. So. Um, what I wanted to do this morning is talk a little bit about what God's doing in my life. Um, I think he's up to something. I don't exactly know what it is, but I think he's up to something. Um, and, um, you know, the last 12 months for me have been pretty exciting. I've, uh, as Keung said, I changed jobs. I, I got a chance to go over and run this, uh, this wild and wacky company uh, called Snowcap. I got kind of thrown in the middle of a firestorm of what's going on with digital music and, and uh, copyright management and can't pick up the paper today. Somebody's not talking about, you know, sort of how do you download content and, you know, the new device that's coming out. And so it's been very exciting for me to sort of get thrown in the middle of uh, the, the, the heads of the music labels and the heads of the studios and, and such. And at the same time, I, um, I put this book out um, called Talent Force, which I'm going to talk uh, about a few ideas out of that. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, it jumped up to number 36 on the Amazon bestseller list and, and had no idea that something like this was going to happen to me in, in over the last 12 months. And I think that, um, you know, what I've, what, I'm, what I've been praying about and what I've been thinking about is that God's preparing me for something. He's giving me a, a platform and a stage to do something. I don't exactly know what it is yet, um, but I hope that when that moment comes, that, that it was that moment that I was being prepared for that I'm ready. And um, that's what I thought would be fun for us to talk about today. Um, you know, what we, how we spend our time and what we do, um, you know, really has a lot to do with that number there. So I'd like to think that's the number that we're all going to live to, right? The year 2080? That's not going to happen. Uh, but 2080 is actually 40 hours times 52 weeks. 40 hours of work times 52 weeks. So um, we all work. We all spend that and probably more than that, you know, in our work lives. And, um, and we need to be thinking about how we're spending that time and, and what we do. So uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about work. Um, and um, to give you a sense of, of that, I got to look backwards before I can look forward. So let me just, you know, get, tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I didn't really grow up in a normal family, um, so maybe part of the preparation that, the, of, of where I am today comes from how I grew up. Uh, my father was in radio and television, um, and he was a disc jockey, and then he was a television news anchor in Louisville, Kentucky, and I sort of grew up hanging around with celebrities in our local town. And so, you know, I was always forced to be in the limelight. He was always pushing me forward. You know, you need to be on the stage. You need to be on the platform. I mean, he took me and, and, he, and, he, and he gave me ballet lessons and tap lessons when I, when I was like five years old. When, you know, other kids make fun of you. You know, why, why are you in ballet? You know, um, a little bit of a sadistic father. But, uh, um, and then he went and he named me Rusty Roof, you know. Um, and that's because he wanted me to have a good radio name. 
and, and that actually worked out okay, you know? That actually worked out, worked out okay. Um, that, that was my dream. My dream was, was to be uh, a radio disc jockey, and, and I did that for a while. I did mornings in Indianapolis, and um, I was the only rusty roof in America. And, um, and that, was, that, was, that was cool. Um, but back in 1985, I, uh, I had a couple of experiences happen in one week that said to me, um, you're going to either stay on this path and become like that, or you're going to change directions and become something else. And I wasn't really old enough or wise enough to understand, but I saw a couple of things that I said, you know what, I just don't want to be in that world. And I happened to be working at a radio station where um, a couple of really popular guys in Indianapolis, and it was early in the morning, and I walked down the hallway, and I walked into the studio, and, and, I, and I'm, I, I was not a prude, actually. I, uh, I, I, I probably lost uh, a few years that I didn't need to lose experimenting um, you know, in my own life, but I walked in there, and there was a sort of a pile of cocaine that looked like a little uh, mountain, and um, this is like at 6.20 in the morning, and the people that were in there were mostly underage. And I looked around the room and I said, you know, if the cops come in, they take me too. Even though I'm down the hallway just doing my job. And I thought, gosh, that's, that's not good. Um, and within a seven-day period, I happened to be with another guy who was sort of bragging about what happened in the back of the van last night um, with a girl that was way underage. And I just said, you know what, i got to do something else with my life. And you know, to, to kind of go through a moral crisis when you're in your early 20s, I think, was unique. Um, but I went through one. And I remember saying to myself at that time, I'm going to leave entertainment and media because I feel like I need to. Um, but I said a prayer. And, I, and, and back then, I was like, this, this was not like I was praying every day um, about this. But I just said a prayer. I said, you know, God, someday give me a chance to come back in entertainment and media where I can make a difference. And, um, you know, God answered that prayer. So you know, for 12 years, I sort of hung out and did every other things. I kind of I went to PepsiCo, I was at United Technologies, and then back in 98, you know, God answered the prayer, and he, and, he, and he brought me to Electronic Arts. And I ended up back in the entertainment business and got to do all those good things and fun, and fun things that got me to today. Also, back in 1985, I, I had an interesting decision going on um, about, uh, with a woman um, that I thought I might was going to marry at the time. And uh, she was a great woman. Um, and uh, she was Catholic, and, and, I, and I was kind of going through, what am I going to be, and going through all this stuff. And, and, um, and we went to counseling and went to a priest, and we were going through this whole thing, and, you know, and it just didn't work out, thank, thank, thank the Lord. Um, but I remember praying back then. I said, you know, God, give me a wife someday that I can share the same faith with. And I ended up uh, in 94 marrying Patty, who was a Catholic, who was an Italian Catholic, who was a New Yorker, okay? So uh, she was a serious Catholic. Uh, and, uh, but she didn't really practice the faith. Uh, and, you know, and it's interesting, because now when I see her working in the children's ministry, I say, God answers prayers. So it, it's been a journey. So all through this journey, um, it's been interesting, because I think I've been prepared. Something's being prepared. And I still don't know what it is. Um, but one of the things that God has done is, uh, is he's given me a chance to be somewhat uh, thought of as an expert around this thing called work. Um, so I speak about it all the time. I wrote this book. I, I, was re I, I get recruited to do a bunch of different things. I like to work. 
Um, so that's, that's been sort of a good thing. Um, but what I thought I would try to um, share is that, that preparation of how we use our work, how we use our life for what I would call working, um, which is the next slide there. And, you know, a play on the word. But I love the idea that the, the king is in that word. You know, and if we think about how we use those 2,080 hours, if we think about how we use our work um, to turn it into working, um, you know, those, those, those hours and days and, and nights and mornings that we spend in a different place, away from our families, away from our friends, um, can actually be um, worth something in the, in the bigger picture. You know, the Bible talks about work a lot. I mean, it's sort of a foundation statement. And it talks about occupations a lot, right? So people are called out as fishermen. They're called out as shepherds. They're called out as tax collectors. And Jesus was called out as a carpenter. And I've had a blast thinking about Jesus as the carpenter. Not just as Jesus the teacher and Jesus as the Savior, but Jesus as a carpenter. And it's been a real blessing for me to, to, as I've been going through getting ready for today um, and thinking about that. Um, so Steve Mazzaroni and I were talking um, a few weeks ago about this, and, you know, and I asked him a question because I, I think he's, 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 he seems to be you know, an expert at figuring out what happened back then. You know, he's just got this curiosity for it. And we were talking about you know, what it meant to be a carpenter back then. And um, so you think that you know, Jesus was a son of Joseph, son of a carpenter, so he hung around with his dad doing carpentry work. And you know, there were no child labor laws back then. So maybe at 12 or 15, maybe even younger, he went to his first job site and he started becoming a professional carpenter. So he had this career that could have spanned 15 to 17 years as a carpenter. That's a long time, right? That's a career that he was a carpenter. And my grandfather on my mother's side was a carpenter and uh, a man of faith. He lives down in Miami. And uh, he... Uh, we, when I was a kid, we talked about this, and I always had this vision of, you know, you see the pictures of, of Jesus as a carpenter, and, you know, back in the, uh, uh, like a, a little shed on the back of the house, and they're back there making, you know, uh, furniture, furniture. And my grandfather used to say, that's a woodworker. That's not a carpenter. That's a woodworker. And that there's a difference. That woodworkers, you know, that, that's cozy and that's nice and they get to sit back there and they polish and they do all that. He goes, you know, a carpenter goes to work every day. A carpenter goes to a, a job site. And I can remember my grandfather, he, he, he was from Springfield, Kentucky, and there was not enough work in Springfield, Kentucky in the early 60s. So he and my grandmother moved to Miami because Miami was booming and it was all this work, the construction work was going on. And we would go down and I would spend the summers with him. And he would get up in the morning, and it was hot in Miami, and he would take off, and he had his lunch pail here and his thermos there. And he would leave as the sun was coming up, and then he would come at, uh, home in the early afternoons after the first shift had done, you know, 3.30 or 4 o'clock, and he'd just be drenched. He'd just be drenched. And he'd come in, and he'd drop things down, and, you know, and he'd sit down at the table, and he would eat voraciously. He would just eat voraciously. And then he'd go to bed because he had to get up tomorrow and do the next thing, the same thing. And I think about that. You know, he was a carpenter. And he would talk sometimes about um, the work site and what it was like. And it's not a pleasant work site. I mean, these were rough, gruff people sharing their experiences, making fun of each other, doing all the things that you can imagine happens on work sites. And you think about that and you say, so if Jesus was a carpenter, that's the kind of work site maybe Jesus went to. 
And maybe he went through that. He got up in the morning and, you know, they didn't have thermoses, but, you know, he took his, his stuff and he went and he, his dad, went off to the work site and they built something and they came home and, you know, that was a tough day's work and you think about the people that he, that he spent any time and he worked with. And you think about that as sort of his preparation ground for what he did later. And I, and I like to, uh, I, want, I spent some time trying to think about, you know, what kind of carpenter might, might have Jesus been when he was on the work site? What kind of guy was he? And, you know, there's, a, there's this great commercial a few years ago that I saw when we lived in New York that they had about uh, uh, contractors. And, you know, anybody's ever had, had any work done on your house, you sort of know what it's like to work with a contractor or work with a carpenter. And it sort of went, the, the commercial kind of went like this. The car, contractor comes in and he says, okay, so let me tell you how it's going to work. So I, you're going to tell me what you want. You're going to tell about four or five other people what you want, and I'm going to go away and I'm going to tell you I'm going to give you a bid. I'm going to be gone for, I don't know, four or five weeks. Four or five weeks and you're going to go, oh, you know what, that guy, he's never coming back. He's never coming back. And just about the time you're so frustrated, I'm going to come back and I'm going to give you my bid. And my bid's going to be way more expensive than you can imagine it's going to be. But because nobody else has come back but me and he can't get the work done, you're going to go, okay, fine, that's great. And then, you're going to, then I'm going to come in and you want my kitchen, your kitchen done, I'm going to come in, I'm going to rip your entire kitchen out and then I'm going to disappear. And I'm going to be gone, I don't know, three, four, five months. You're not going to be able to call me. You're going to be searching me down, the whole thing. You're not going to be, you know, you're going to be doing all of your cooking in the bathtub, you know, and, it, and you're not going to be able to find me. You're going to be just that frustration. You're going to call, you're just about ready to call your lawyer and I'm going to show back up. And I'm going to say, I'm really sorry, I got busy, got things going on, you know, I, but we're going to finish it. And then I'm going to come in and I'm going to finish it. And it's going to be at least two or three times what I told you it was going to be from a cost perspective. <laughs> and that's just the way it's going to work. And isn't that the way it works? That's so the way it works. Now, I don't think that was Jesus, right? <laughs> I don't think Jesus was that kind of carpenter, that kind of contractor. But it might have well been why, you know, so, you know, so why didn't, and now I'm just going to take like live philosophical license here. So, you know, why didn't Jesus, you know, say he was the son of God, you know, during all that time? You know, what well, can you imagine being able to say, you know, my contractor, he's on time, he delivers, he doesn't overpromise and, and, uh, and under, or under promise and overcommit. You know, he didn't overcharge me. You know, you'd love to have that guy working for you, right? And oh, by the way, he's the son of God. You know, that probably didn't all work out so well, but, uh, but you know, you, you know I got to think that Jesus didn't do shoddy work, you know? I don't think he probably missed work. He probably showed up every day. He probably didn't complain. He probably didn't hang out and gossip. He probably didn't beg for a promotion, um, and he probably wasn't unhappy in his job. And I think that's a great example for all of us. So the other thing I think about carpentry is um, there's some great lessons in life that come out of carpentry, right? Out of the work of carpentry. You know, it, what about that great line, you know, measure twice, cut once? You know, that's attention to detail. You know, great carpenters, you know, they know the right tools to use at the right time. They're really familiar with all of their skills and all of their tools. The great carpenters actually work really well with each other because they work on the team together. They get stuff done. They're a problem solver. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I, unfortunately, I got two good tools, the pen and the credit card. I mean, I, I, I mean, I can't do anything else. I'm still one of the guys that, you know, righty to, you know, lefty, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so I can't, I start to do one of these jobs, and I'm okay until I get into a problem. 
right? And then I don't know how to solve the problem. You know, so great carpenters are problem solvers. They have vision and they deliver on time and they deliver with quality. And I think that Jesus, you know, likely set a good example as a worker. And this day job that he had was preparing him for the future. Was preparing him for the future. So the great works that, uh, the words that we've heard the last few uh, months from Pastor Terry about the parables. I mean, I think one of the reasons why the parables work and why they worked so well is because these were the stories of real life. And, you know, so how did Jesus have a chance to tell those stories in a way that resonated so well? It's because those were the people he was hanging out with. You know, so for the 15 years plus, you know, that he was working, he was getting him ready for something. And, you know, maybe had he not been a carpenter, maybe if he'd been sitting up on an ivory tower somewhere, or the, you know, the son of the CEO or the son of the mayor, you know, he'd never been able to tell those stories. He'd never been able to relate to the real people. So a premise that I have is those 2,080 hours, you know, our work, while it may not be important what we are or what we called, because I don't think that, you know, when we, when we go to heaven, actually God is going to say, well, great, you were a carpenter. That's cool. You and I have this relationship. I don't think that's going to happen, right? Or you were a CEO or you were a banker. But how we work and how we went about using our skills and our talents um, will matter. And that, and that is what God is using us and, and wants to prepare us for. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to share, you know, three kind of work to working ideas with you that I think can make all of us better um, in how we work and also make us closer from taking our work to working um, and to, to glorify God. Um, because one thing that I will tell you is that uh, no matter what you do, people are watching. Somebody is watching. And we are setting examples in how we work. And we're setting examples to our fellow co-workers, to our boss, um, to people that are, you know, even to our kids and, and, and to family members about how we work and how we think about our work. So the first one that I would give you is, um, you know, the, the concept of run the race well. So I'm a runner um, for, my, uh, for my physical uh, exercise. And, you know, I kind of think Paul was a runner. I mean, he talks about running and, and, and running the race and how he uses the race so many times as an example. Um, but it, it plays so well into, into how we think about our work and what we do. Um, I think to run the race well in our work, um, you have to have goals and you have to be, have achieve, be achievement-minded. And I think people want to see, they want to hang around people who have goals and who want to achieve those goals. Um, who, people who want to grow. I mean, running the race well is saying, you know, I know how I want to do it, and I want to get better at it, and I want to grow, and I'm committed to growing myself. How many times are we in the workplace where you're with people who aren't committed to growing? They're just sort of happy with the status quo. They're happy as being just as good as they are. You know, they sort of bring down everybody else. You know, it is so true that the, 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 the chain is only as good as the, the weakest link. And if you're on a team and you're not working to grow yourself and to be better, the rest of the chain is not getting stronger. Um, you know, that, the, the statement that the devil's in the details, I hate that statement. I think God is in the details. I mean, read the book of Exodus. Look, what, look how God said to build the temple. It's pretty exact. Think about what is Jesus as a carpenter. It was exact. Everything's about the details. Um, how we pay attention to the details in our work. 
how we pay attention to the details of what we do sets an example as a part of the way we run the race well. And then what is work? And we could, uh, you know, to each one of us, and we could probably spend another, you know, session or two or three sessions just on that. You know, is work the end game or is it a mean to the ends? And what I mean by that is where is it in your priority set? So I have a personal issue and sometimes I let work jump too far up on the priority set. And it doesn't do well for myself or for others when I do that. Certainly doesn't do well for Patty when I do that. Um, you know, when I hear those four dreaded words, when you coming home, those are the four dreaded words, you know, that phone rings, when you coming home, you know. Um, that's, not, that's when I know I've, I've, I've missed my priority set. Um, but that, that plays out in the workplace too. You know, when people look at you, if you get all consumed about work. So, you know, how we run the race is really, really, really important. And if we run the race well, we set a great example, a great example to others. The second one is, and this is the, this is the, the secret that I give to everybody that I can. Um, this is the secret of success in, life, in, in work. Um, go the extra mile. Just to go the extra mile. Let me tell you what happens. If, if you've got a boss that you want to manage, it's real simple. Just do a little bit more and a little bit sooner than what he or she asked you to do. Because guess what? Guess what the response is? There is no other response other than thank you. And then they give you a little bit more. No one ever said, hey, don't do more than I ask you to do. <laughs> right? All you do, it's a biblical principle. We've got it right in front of us. All you got to do is go the extra mile. And let me tell you what that does to others. When they see you do that, it create, it's infectious. It's contagious. Your attitude they know that. They see that. They come to you. They call on you. You're the person that they will seek out for help and counsel. And guess what gets to happen when they help you out? They seek you out for help and counsel. You get to share. You get to share. They say, why are you like that? Why do you always go that little bit of extra? Boy, what an easy way to share, you know, your faith. What an easy way. And then the last thing I would say on this part is, you know, um, part of going the extra mile is rounding up on other people. So we're all in teams, you know. So even if you're in a, an individual contributor in a company, you still work on a team, right? You're still part of a company. And I see so many people who round down on people, who are always looking for the hole in the donut, who are always looking for the thing that somebody didn't get done, and always looking for a way to knock them down instead of being like the Good Samaritan and when somebody else falls down, reaching down and pick them up. Just reach them down and pick them up. Round up on people. Look for their, trust that their intentions are right. You know, there's going to be times that people are going to burn you. There's just no doubt about it. But if you take that principle of going the extra mile with people and their attitudes, you know, you, you, you may never know um, how it turns out, but the relationships and the people that are, that are watching how you do that, um, again, it's another great um, example. The third one is, um, and this comes out, for me out of, uh, out of the fruit of the Spirit, which we've been teaching the kids upstairs. If you, if you want to have fun, go upstairs in the garden room and look at our tree. Our, our, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's great. You know, every week we've been doing this, and we talked about self-control. And I've had a hard time finding in my life, and especially in my work life, uh, anything that comes good out of something that gives you instant gratification. 
And just think about it. Anything that gives you instant gratification, I mean, is it really good for you? And in the workplace, um, there's a lot of chances to get instant gratification. And there's a lot of chances for you not to practice the self-control, the fruit of the spirit self-control. Um, and those situations can be small, they can be big, you can be put in situations. Um, in my work life, you know, I'm put in situations all the time where you know, I have to make choices. And those choices are language that I use, right? So when you sit in a room where the language, you know, you know, how do you set your, how do you be different? You know, how do you, um, you control yourself? Um, what's the truth? You know, there are a lot of people in my business that lie. I mean, they just flat out lie. It's all about the deal. And they just, they just lie. And then they bait you to see if you're going to lie with them. And you get a moment that says, you know, instant gratification is great. I'll just go with the, go with the flow. The harder thing to do is to step back and, say, and try to find the truth. And I think we all go through that. And the discipline to not enter into those things and the discipline to not cut corners. Right? Carpenters can't cut corners. Carpenters have to, they gotta, they gotta make the corner fit. So the discipline to not cut corners. And it's fascinating, right? On the front page of the paper now, it's like a novel. The Enron story is a novel. It's absolutely novel. And you know what the shame of the Enron story is? So, uh, Kenneth Lay, he wasn't a bad guy. And if you go to Houston, right, this man gave money to the community. I mean, he was out there, you know, doing lots of good works. And, um, but here was a guy that, you know, didn't have the discipline, who looked for this, the instant gratification, the, to meet the quarterly pressure, to do the things that, you know, that, that he shouldn't have done. And, there was a, uh, an, interesting, uh, an interesting part of that uh, story the other day that I just almost floored me. So one of the accountants was testifying. And the accountant was being asked, um, he, he did a reversal on an accrual. And for those of you, you know, that, that don't know what, what that is, is you have an accrual for lots of different things. And, and you can put money aside, um, rightfully, to, for what might happen in the future. And, you know, that can help you sometimes whether or not you're, you know, how much money you're going to flow to the bottom line that, that quarter or not or that year. And a, um, one of the accountants reversed an accrual to make the numbers work for the quarter. And they asked him, well, did somebody tell you to do that? He said, no. Why did you do it? He goes, well, because I felt it was the right thing to do. I felt it was the right thing to do. And he said when he did it, and he went and told them that he had done it, the person didn't go, wow, great for breaking that. Oh, that's super, super. You really did it. He said, thank you, and he gave him a hug. He gave him a hug. Now, imagine you're in a moral dilemma, right? You've done something you didn't know was really right to do. What do you go home and tell your wife that night, right? Probably what you went home and did, you felt somebody made you feel good about it because they gave you a hug and they thanked you for your work. And you fell into the trap of instant gratification. You fell in the trap of not self-control and what you were supposed to do. And it comes very subtly. It comes very subtly. And if we're not preparing ourselves and thinking about these things and, and spending time in the word and trying to make sure we understand the difference between right and wrong, and in those moments we can get sucked into it. 
Our temper, our, our, our temper is an easy one, right? You know, you lose your temper at work. We all, if you don't, if you ever lost your temper at work, which I don't lose my temper a lot. About three times a year, I lose my temper. Because of that, when I lose my temper, it's got big shocks that go with it. And a few years ago, I lost my temper once, and I got a call from someone in Asia. Someone in Asia. They weren't in the room, but the word had gotten around. Somebody in Asia called me and said, I understand you're really upset about this. I wasn't that upset about it. <laughs> but it shockwaves. Shockwaves. And, you know, I don't think God wants us to lose our tempers like that. He wants us to be passionate. He wants us to be passionate, but he doesn't want us to lose our tempers. So, you know, if we think about it, if we run the race well, if we go the extra mile, if we deny our, our instant gratification, if we find our self-control, then maybe we get to be like Aaron. So I love, the, I love this. It's in Exodus 28, 36. So um, when Aaron was in the temple, um, the, he had a headband. And on the headband, this is what it said. Set apart as holy to the Lord. Now, wouldn't it be cool if we could wear that headband every day? We can. We can. Now, Aaron had to wear it because, um, as I best understand it, was in, you went into the temple, and if you rubbed up against somebody who had sinned or had done something bad, and you kind of caught up with, you know, and if you actually went all the way up to the ark and you weren't purified, you could get burned up. You know, like, bad things could happen to you, right? You know, you could just sort of disintegrate. Um, <laughs> it's not that different. It's not that different. We brush up against it all the time. Right? We brush up against it all the time. And we're in a place, you know, we come to this place and it's holy, right? We go back tomorrow and on Monday to a place that's not necessarily holy. But yet we try to wear that headband in our examples and what we do. And we want other people to look at it and go, set apart as holy to the Lord. Set apart as holy to the Lord. And so that when we brush up against that other things, those other things, maybe we're, maybe we're protected. Maybe that helps us be protected. And that example gives you freedom and it gives you, and for me, it gives me courage. So if I'm doing those other things, then I feel like I have more courage to actually share my faith. And I, uh, those, who was here last month for Brian Seip? You know, I, I got to tell you, I was so touched by that. And I was touched by that because he was just being honest. Right? He was being honest about you know, the struggles that he's going through and how he shares his faith. And, you know, and here's a guy that's sort of set up for that. Right? He coaches in a Christian school. You know, everybody knows Brian Sipe is a man of faith. You know, all these things. And yet he's still struggling with how he, 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 how he, um, how he sends his message. And you know, I think that the preparation, the things that we do, you know, how we work and what we do in our work life, if we do those things right and we become this example where people may never come up to you but they, they say, wow, you're set, you're set apart. It's holy to the Lord. Uh, but yet they, they know you're different and they know that you know, you're able to do some things that other people can't do. It, does, it gives you that freedom and it gives you that courage to actually share your faith. And one of the things that has given me courage to do is I've gone into this new job, and Pastor Terry um, would say, you know, you press yourself into something. You press yourself into it. And I've been trying to press myself into this new job. So I have 40 people in my company, and I've gotten a chance to, I went around, I did one-on-ones with every one of them. And as I explained who I was, 
and I gave him my background and such, one of the things I told him is, is I teach Sunday school. And I also tell him, and this is the truth, it's the hardest thing I do all week long. Right? Keeping the attention, you know, of fourth through sixth graders <laughs> up in that little room at the same time I have to tell them to be quiet, you know. It's the hardest thing I do all week long. But my opportunity to just drop that seed, right, is a, is a unique opportunity. Um, I had Pastor Terry and his two sons, right before I left EA, come out to EA, and, uh, and we had breakfast together. And I wanted his kids to see electronic arts, such as, you know, I was proud of it, right? A uh, game company. And, uh, you know, and, and that morning we bowed our head and we had, uh, and we, over our breakfast. And I got back to my desk and I got an, had an email from a guy that I didn't know. He says, um, Rusty, you don't know me. I just, I'm brand new in the company. Um, I grew up in the, in the South, where it's very common to see people praying over their meal. I don't know if you do it all the time or not. I don't know if those were your friends or family or whoever they were. Um, but I just wanted to thank you for having the courage to do that. Wow. Wow. You know, if you're doing all the other things, then you, and, and you start to do these little detail things at the same time, you start to, you know, it get, you start to have the courage to, to keep the example going. And the last thing I'll tell you on this was... Um, so I wrote this book, Talent Force, and we started it with the parable of the talents. And we just used the parable of the talents. You know, you can bury them or you can use them. And a few weeks ago, I was on a radio uh, interview um, out of Sacramento. The first thing the guy asked me was, why did you use the parable of the talents? And I had that moment where I could say, well, Hank and I, we're men of faith. And... I don't think I would have had the freedom or the courage to actually put it in the book, to actually feel, um, to speak about it, if I wasn't convicted about the other principles and the other ways that I'm trying to live my life. Right? So it's that moment of preparation. It's all about the getting ready for preparation. So, so the question I pose to myself all the time, so I pose it to you, uh, is it work or is it working? Right? And if it's work, what do you got to do to change it to make it working? It might just be an attitude shift. It might just be thinking about job and the work that you do differently. It might be where you got it in the priority set. It might be the type of people that you're surrounding yourself with in the workplace that's making it work versus working for you. That you just, there's another set of people that maybe you should surround yourself over there. Or it might be the job itself, you know? And sometimes, you know, change is not a bad thing. So I think what matters to God, you know, is how we live, how we set those examples, um, how we use what we've give, been given um, to work to glorify Him. And working is glorifying Him. Work and doing the other things, that's probably not glorifying but putting the right things into our work to make it working is glorifying. So I finished my book with a Chinese proverb. The Chinese proverb is this. The best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Right? <laughs> the second best time is today. Not tomorrow, but today. So we've all got a choice, right? We're going to walk out of here. We're going to go back, 
things are going to start going. You know, tomorrow we'll spend one more day, you know, in the other world. Um, and, then, and then we go back into the real world, you know, and, uh, and, you know, we get that choice. We get that choice, is it work or is it working? And that's what I'm, that's what I'm working on for myself. And, you know, my hope is, is that, you know, the, that God is using all of the different experiences, all of those different moments, all that attention to detail to, to do all the right things, that there will be a moment. And I may never know what it was, but there will be a moment where, you know, he was set apart. It's holy to the Lord. He was set apart. So, thank you so much.